I've always kind of been fascinated by mythology, and my mom, knowing this at a, a young age, gave me a college copy of Edith Hamilton's Mythology. That's a great collection of all the stories from the Greek and Roman days, and I've just always been interested in that stuff. And, and in later years, I, I found myself, after that old book that's now got a half a roll of scotch tape on it holding it together, to expand my collection. So now, right next to it on the shelf, there are things like A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, Bullfinch's Mythology, Aesop's Fables, Grimm's Fairy Tales, and many more. I've just always found this stuff really interesting. And one of the mythological creatures I think is the most interesting, and the stories I like to hear the most, are about the phoenix. Plenty of you have heard about this. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bird, a sacred firebird, whose origins go all the way back to ancient Egypt. And he was this beautiful bird with gold and, and red plumage. And as the story goes, when the phoenix would get old, it would sense its impending death and so start to make preparations by building a nest and it would gather cinnamon sticks and other fragrant herbs to put in its nest. And then it would stay there until it died. And when it died, it ignited into flame and caught all these fragrant things on fire and it sent this glorious sight and smell into the air. But for the phoenix, well, its time had come and its glory seemed lost for good. But do you know what happens next in the story of the phoenix? After everything was burned to cinders, after all hope was lost, after anybody would look at that charred nest and think there is only death, the phoenix would rise from the ashes, completely reborn in a gloriously new body. And immediately it would take to the skies with fire and fervor, singing otherworldly songs with glorious new life. Now, I don't know exactly why the ancients came up with this story. I don't know really what they were trying to get at, but what I imagine, more than anything, that they wanted to believe that all of our so-called glory, everything we are as human beings that will eventually be devoured by time or by fire, or by death, that there would be the slightest possibility that from the ashes of our old life, we might be reborn. The mythology they wished to be true, I believe, is shown to be more real than they could have possibly imagined. Only it's in the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the longings of our hearts and every culture and every age to not face death but to live again find their true purpose and place in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis had this notion that he called the true myth. It's this idea that all the, in our cultures and our mythologies and all the hopes and desires that we humans put into these stories, into these mythologies, are actually our deep spiritual longings that are fulfilled in a better and truer and more satisfying way. Not in any phoenix, not in any mythological creature or hero, but in the real 
person of Jesus Christ who was born into this world, who suffered, was crucified, buried, who descended to the dead, who was resurrected from the grave, ascended into heaven, and now finally is promised to return to us. And so when I think about the Apostle Peter, I think about the story of the phoenix. Because in the spring of last year, we've, we started what I didn't know at the time would become our walk through this Petrine trilogy. In other words, the three books of the Bible that Peter had the most shaping hand in. So that started with the Gospel of Mark, who wasn't written by Peter directly, but was written by Peter's student, John Mark who he called in his first letter like a son to him. And we believe that a lot of the eyewitness testimony we have in that story comes from Peter's own experience. Which is why we see Peter at some of his greatest and most heroic moments. We see him at some of his saddest and worst moments too. So Peter kind of reminds me of a phoenix. He's young and glorious and he's rising. He's soaring high in the skies and he's following Jesus. He's confessing Him as the Christ alone. He's witnessing the transfiguration. But he's also now in these other letters like the aging phoenix. One who has fallen from glory and fallen hard. And we've read more stories about Peter now. We've seen that he's been rebuked by Jesus. Jesus called him Satan at one point. He's been rebuked by the Apostle Paul. He's denied the Christ that he loved. And he even, we remember how he ran away from the crucifixion. We've seen Peter at his best and his worst. And now at the end of his life, here in his old age, and with his chicken scratch letters, Peter holds true to the command that Jesus once gave him to strengthen his brothers and sisters. What a ministry Peter's had. Not a perfect life, but one so enthusiastic about Jesus. One who stuck his foot in his mouth just as often as he said profound things, but all the way to the end was faithful to the one that was faithful to him. I think if our church can be like that, not perfect, not glamorous, not having it all together, not without our imperfections, but like Peter, limping across the finish line faithfully, what a ministry we would have had And so across now these last letters that we've been in for these past several months, Peter, who has been himself at his wit's end, felt lonely and isolated, he's writing to spiritual exiles all over the world. And he is encouraging people like us who feel like him. Sometimes we have great moments. Sometimes we feel like we're on fire for the Lord. And other times we feel like the world's biggest failure. We're not good spouses. We're not good parents. We're not good friends. We're not good family members. We we feel lousy. But the beauty is that Peter writes to us, reminding us that this world, this experience, is not ultimately the one we were made for. And this creation is giving way to a new and better one. 
where although our, we come into this world with, with sin and failure, we go into the next one completely clean. Not because of anything we do, not because of anything we believe, but through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we go into a new world where all things finally make sense. And so he's writing to us in his aging days, when he's sick and in prison, when he's tired and feels like that aging phoenix. He's writing to us in that moment when maybe we feel like that. To remind us to be like Jesus. Because being like and in Jesus means we share in God's eternal divine life. See, all the wisdom that he shared with us so far to serve each other, to submit to even hard-to-submit-to temporary authorities in this world, to suffer under it all with humility. All of that is what Jesus did for us when He came to earth. And so, if we are to share in God's eternal life, a life of glory and redemption and vindication, we must first share and partake in Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. If we want to be reborn like the phoenix, we first must die like it. And so, now Peter's last words to us, his last letter, the end of his life, are words of encouragement. His last words to us this morning are threefold. First, it's to be on guard. Second, it's to be willing to grow. And third, it's to be ready always to give glory to God. So let's look at these last two verses as we finish our time with Peter in the Scriptures. Peter writes in verse 17 this, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you're not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your stable position." Now he says, you know this in advance. What do we know in advance? What is he referring to here? I think he's referring to all the major points that he's made in his letter so far. This is a summarizing statement. Peter is wanting us to remember how he's talked about the centrality of the Scriptures in the Christian life. The coming day of the Lord where justice will be done. And, and the necessity of holiness in the here and the now those are the things that we already know in advance. Since we know all those things in advance, since we know those are true, then what does He tell us? Church, be on your guard. Don't be led away by the error of lawless people and therefore fall away from your own stable position. So Peter's first word of encouragement here is for the church to be on its guard. Maranatha, be on your guard. Well, guard against what, we might ask. You know, I'm convinced that this is one of the most needed truths for the church today. The church in America, I think, especially. Because in the past few years, I think we've all been a little bit shocked by exactly how we've seen. Not just that it happened, but how we've seen Christians being led away 
from the truth and led astray into error. So many, we feel, have traded in their stable position. They, they have traded their stable position as a citizen in God's kingdom for the unstable and fading position of being a citizen of this country and of this world. But all throughout this letter, church, Peter has warned us that false prophets and teachers like Balaam of old would come and try to deceive us away from the straight and narrow. And if their campaign to curse us and, 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 to, and to verbally antagonize us fails, they will pivot into seducing us instead. That's exactly what Balaam did. He went up on the mountain to curse Israel. But the only thing that God allowed him to speak was blessings over Israel. So that didn't work. So he had to regroup. And you know what he did? He sent foreign people to seduce Israel. Now, this is not talking about immigrants or foreigners. He sent people of a different religion, a, a religion of flesh and money, to go and seduce Israel away from worshiping God and worship things of this world. Folks, while Balaam couldn't hex Israel with his sorcery, he sure did entice them into sin by appealing to their lusts. I know of no country on earth that is more given to chasing after its lusts than one of the richest and most powerful in the world. It's become increasingly clear to me that while our society curses us, and that hasn't worked, it only in some ways makes our resolve stronger. The one thing they have done that has been a success is luring us away from worship. Luring us away from forgiveness. Luring us away of love of God and neighbor through seducing us with money and flesh and power. Christians in this country lust for control. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. This past year and a half has showed me just how much Christians will say, nobody tells me what to do. And I want to say, are you a Christian and you're going to tell me that there's nobody that tells you what to do? You don't obey anybody? As soon as that happens, as soon as it becomes clear that we're not going to get our little selfish way, Tragically, I see we'll throw all of our attention and money at whatever stupid cultural or political idol that will protect our selfish interests. Folks, I almost had a stroke this week watching the news. I, I tell you not to do it, and then I turn around and do it myself. And just, so you'll have to forgive your hypocritical pastor. But I heard a woman who was an evangelical Christian, interviewed at some political rally. I don't even know what the extent of it was. I didn't want to know and I didn't care. But she went there and she said she was there to watch God divide the sheep from the goats. An evangelical woman said she was going to do that. And the interviewer asked her, well, what are you, ma'am? And she says, well, I'm a goat. I'm not a sheep. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Folks, 
if your politics or your culture or your ideologies have you so misreading Scripture that you'd rather be with the goats that are sent into the wilderness with the demon god Azazel than be a sheep that is cared for by the great shepherd, you've lost sight of what it means to be a Christian. This woman says she's here to uphold the Word of God and she didn't even know that Jesus calls a sheep because that would go against her culture, it would go against her politics. Be on guard against the seductions of this world. I'd rather be a sheep to the shepherd Jesus than a lion in the greatest parliament or congress or corporation in the world. These people will tempt you in any way they can. They'll tempt you to think only about your rights as an American. And you'll totally ignore what's right in the sight of God. My hair is going to turn gray prematurely from reading the Old Testament. Reading all of these, these, these oh, this Israel and during Solomon's day when they were, oh, rich and, and powerful and glorious. They're the greatest nation. They have the greatest productivity and the greatest stock market and the greatest art and the greatest everything. And we slowly see them just absolutely corrode their humanity with it. Till one day the prophets have to come and say, you love your worship, you love your money, and you hate the poor people amongst you. And God hates it. He doesn't care about your church services. He doesn't care about your worship. He doesn't care about your pomp and circumstance and reputation in the community when you have people in your ranks that are starving and you turned a blind eye to it. Folks, do not be the kind of people that get tricked into thinking the most important thing for you is your political freedom to take, to have, to keep when Jesus Christ frees you to love and to serve and to give. Are you greater than your Master? He came to this earth and suffered for all. Suffered under everybody. And we, we believe, oh, He forgives me of sin, and now I'm going to go sit on a throne of my own making and ignore every needy person? The error that Peter wants us to avoid comes from these lawless people. Now this is interesting. Because they may not necessarily be lawless in the sense that they're breaking the laws of the land. But they can still be lawless. Maybe they're obeying every local and state and federal authority, but they can be lawless because they care nothing for the greatest law of, of all. The royal law of love. Love of God and love for neighbor. You can keep every jot and tittle of all of your country, your city's law code and be as lawless as can possibly be if you don't love God. And consequently, because you love God, love the people that God loves. Church, I like you am thankful for the material benefits and privileges of the world in which we live. I'm thankful that you can 
go to a, a doctor and they can give you medicine. I'm thankful that you can rest peaceably at your home at night thinking it's very little chance a militia is going to kick in my door and come take my family. I'm thankful for that. I am. I know we all are thankful to live in the, the limited peace that we have. But folks, I want us to hear this loving word of the Lord Jesus. It's not my word. It's His. What does it profit any of us if we gain all the security and wealth and power and freedom of this world and we lose our own souls in the process? Church, be on guard against these kind of seductions. That's his first word of encouragement. His second word of encouragement, something that actually maybe feels more encouraging to us, is in verse 18a. He says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians, don't just be on guard against sin. Don't be on guard against selfishness. But by way of contrast, don't stay in that neutral area, but grow. Be willing to grow. How can you grow? How should you grow? He gives us a twofold way. Grow in grace. And grow in knowledge. In chapter 1, Peter described to us a golden chain of virtue that all Christians must grow in. It is not optional for Peter. This is what Christianity looks like to him. And it's the truth for Peter as it is for James and it is for Jesus. A Christian faith that isn't active, a Christian faith that isn't growing is not a faith at all. We Protestants, I believe, to correct the abuses of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, have so overcorrected about what we say faith is that we take all good deed out of faith. We just say, it's just, well, it's just you believe in Jesus and that's it. Folks, we confess with Paul that we are saved by grace through faith alone. We are saved by that alone. We believe that. There's nothing we do. It's a gift of God. We believe that. But we stop the sentence right there and don't go on and read what Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John, all of them tell us to do. To love. To serve. To be obedient. To give. It's real easy. It's real easy for us to say, well, I believe in Jesus. I don't go to church. I don't ever love or help anybody. I'm angry at, at people that inconvenience me all the time. What kind of Christianity is that? Certainly not a biblical one. Grow in grace and knowledge. Peter talks about this in chapter 1 by supplementing our faith. It's interesting. We believe that faith in Christ alone is what saves us. Faith alone in the faithful Christ is what saves us. But Peter says, but don't stop with faith. Supplement it. With what? With goodness. With knowledge. Here's a hard one for Americans. With self-control. With endurance. With godliness. With affection. And of course, the chief virtue of all with love. Christian, I'm, con I'm convinced sometimes that we get bogged down reading the Scriptures because we just see it as a, as a, as a list of to-dos. 
It's, it's just constant self-improvement that we're always failing at, and it's psychologically and emotionally and spiritually exhausting. But don't look at this as something you have to do to earn God's love. If Christ died to save you, it's done. It's done. But look at it this way. Don't rob yourself of the joy and blessing of growth. Don't rob yourself of what you were designed to be by, by choosing something else that you think you should be. No amount of money or control or pleasure this world can wave in your face will ever give you more meaning than growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only King and Savior. Nothing this world can offer you will give you more satisfaction than knowing Him and His grace for you. Nothing. Nothing! Be willing to grow in grace. How do we grow in grace? I think a good way to start is by seeing all the good in your life that is really just grace and kindness from God to you. Any of the good things that you feel like you have in your life, did you choose to have any of that? If, if being successful and beautiful and smart and well-liked, if all that was a choice, everybody, we'd all be celebrities. We don't, we don't choose what we have, what we are often. We think we might work hard for it. We're, we convince ourselves of this, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, analogy and theology, and we forget that every gift comes down from the Father of lights with who there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything we have, even the stuff we worked hard for, the Lord allowed that to happen. He could stop it just like that if He wanted to. If He so will, He's so gracious. He allows good things to come to even to evil people. It rains and shines on the just and the unjust. That's how good God is. He's patient with some of the most evil people on the world. Every good we have is a gift of grace. You want to grow in grace? Remember that everything in your life is grace. And that's how you'll grow in grace. What about growing in knowledge? Now the Hebrew people, for them, there is no such thing as knowledge apart from experience. So the idea of abstracted, you know, whatever, quantum mechanics, all of that stuff in the ancient world, I know they were pre-modern science and all that stuff, but the way they understood experience, the way they understood philosophy, the way they understood morals are always worked out through human bodies and experiences. So do you want to grow in knowledge? Yes. Read good books. Listen to good sermons. But do you want to grow in knowledge? You can grow in knowledge by experiencing God in your life through worship. Grow in knowledge through daily Scripture reading. Grow in knowledge through prayerfulness. Grow in knowledge through being obedient to baptism. Grow in knowledge by partaking in the bread and the cup as it's offered. Grow in knowledge by fellowship and forgiveness and worship and witness, that's how you grow in knowledge. By experiencing God in your life. That will 
open and expand your mind to be able to know more about God as you know Him more through experience. So how do you grow in grace and knowledge? You really don't have to do that much or go that far. See how God has already been gracious to you. Experience Him in your life and you'll start to grow in ways you couldn't believe. You don't have to take any courses. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to get a prayer coach. You don't have to get a spiritual guru. Simply pay attention to how God is already at work in your life. Participate in the the simple things. Anybody can come to a Sunday worship service, and that's the point. Experience those things and experience a whole new life. Church, be willing to grow in these ways. Be on guard. First word of encouragement. Be willing to grow. And third and finally, Peter's last words to us. They're not advice. They're not admonition. They're a benediction to us. It's a good word. Not about us and not about what we can do, but about who God already is for us. The last words He ever wrote on planet Earth were a doxology to God. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Not to Himself. Not to the church. Not to anyone, but God alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be glory right now. Right now when our days are long and full of suffering. Right now when our world is in political and ecological and social and health crisis. Right now when our hearts are quivering with fear and doubt and sorrow. Right now be glory to God. Why? Because this God came to be with us in Jesus. He didn't turn a blind eye to the mess we got ourselves in, but came to experience all of our pain and sorrow and loss personally by leaving behind His unblemished, perfect spiritual life and taking on a limited human body forever. Folks, if you want to worship God, start by thinking of this. He was The Son of God was perfect in every way. Above and transcendent of all creation. Sitting on it, above it, enthroned in the heavens and earth was His footstool. And He chose to put on a human body, not just for the 33 years He lived and walked on earth, but for the rest of eternity. Put on a human, the indignity of a human body. I know when you wake up in the morning and sometimes you think, this body is trying to kill me. Look at this body. Oh gosh, i got to lose weight. Oh, my neck. Ugh. Jesus, the infinite and immortal God, put that on forever for us. The God who came to love not only likable and rich and smart and powerful people, in fact, He went to the lowly and the hateful, and the poor, and the stupid. Jesus went and loved the people that hated Him the most. And by going to the cross, God in the flesh, this mystery of mysteries, 
Jesus dying on the cross, a cross of our own cruel design to cancel the curse of sin of our own making. Glory to that God right now. And glory to that God through all of eternity. The God who rose from the grave so that one day we would too. The God who ascended to His throne to establish a kingdom for us to become a part of and live in. The God who now invites us to share in His divine life. Not even the angels are privileged to pull up a seat at God's dinner table, but we are. With all our ignorance and apathy and sin and everything else, through the blood of Jesus, we are free to come and dine with God as friends forever. To Him be glory both right now and forever and ever and evermore. And that, dear friends, is the life and times of Simeon Peter, the Galilean fisherman who became an apostle of Jesus Christ. And truly, when I look at Peter, a man that had such just glorious and heroic strides and how hard he fell, can't think of anything else but a phoenix. This reminds me of another man that lived about 400 years ago, a man named Thomas Decker. And he was an English playwright and a contemporary of William Shakespeare. And in 1609 in London, there was a terrible outbreak of the bubonic plague. And it was killing citizens by the hundreds and thousands and creating such economic and social unrest in that country. Here in 2021, over 400 years later, we look out at our world and see that we're facing a lot of similar issues. And during Thomas Decker's days in quarantine, he was so affected by the, the, the brutality of the world that he lived in that instead of writing plays, he set that aside for a while and started writing prayers. And he used, as sort of an inspiration, he used four kind of imaginary birds from Noah's Ark that would symbolize different facets of prayer. Noah's Ark, as you remember, is a favorite story of Peter. He tells it three or four times in these two letters. And one of those birds he creatively patterned after a phoenix. This is really interesting. It's a symbol of resurrection. And so the prayers of the phoenix, as he has them written in his book, are all prayers about our resurrection and life after death. And the la- this is amazing. I couldn't believe it. This is such, sometimes things just come together in ways that you think that, that God has been playing the long game for 400 years now. The last prayer he wrote in this book, in this time of plague and social unrest, comes from Mark's Gospel. And it's about the second coming of Jesus. And it's about a phoenix. And so, as I close in prayer today, I want to pray some of those words that he wrote. Those beautiful, biblical words in times of plagues and troubles that we will one day see the return of Christ and see the day of the Lord. And like the phoenix, who's just a mythological creature, 
but like creation itself, be reborn out of fire into a redeemed world where God has made all things new for us. Let's pray. Behold, the gates of heaven stand wide open. Armies of angels are mustered together. The apostles keep their places. The evangelists, their offices. The saints, their degrees. And all are attendant upon our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, who sits upon a throne of majesty and is coming to judge this world. At the sight of Him, the wicked tremble and call for the mountains to cover them, but the godly rejoice and are thrilled at this high day of triumph. And there will be security without fear, peace without invasion, wealth without diminishment, honor without envy. There will be all blessedness, all sweetness, all life, and all eternity. There our hunger shall be filled with the bread of life and our thirst quenched with the fountain of His goodness and our nakedness clothed with a garment of immortal righteousness. Come, therefore, speedily, O God, for Your church's sake. Hasten this great and general session and grant to us, most merciful Father, that our accounts may be found so just, so righteous, that we may receive the rewards of good stewards. That after we have slept in our graves for a little while, we may rise up in joy with Your Son and ascend with Him into heaven. And there at Your hands receive an immortal crown of everlasting glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.